Hello, my name is Matthew Bates, and I choose Truth Over Tribe. Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Everyone knows that something is wrong with the American church, but after that, the agreement ends. Some people blame Christian nationalists. Other people blame those who are, in their words, going woke. But what if the problem is deeper? What if the problem is more biblical, even theological? Matthew Bates is part of a growing movement of biblical scholars who think that the church has gotten the gospel wrong. And because of that, the church has misunderstood what it means to be a Christian. Bates's new book is Why the Gospel, Living the Good News of King Jesus with Purpose. In our conversation, we get into what is the gospel, but we spend even more time in the why behind the gospel and how the gospel should shape everything in our life, from our personal behavior to our politics. Matthew Bates, welcome to Truth Over Tribe. Hey, thanks for having me, Keith. Hey, we are discussing your newest book, Why the Gospel, Living the Good News of King Jesus with Purpose, and it comes out on May 16th. And this is, I think, the third or fourth book of yours that I've read, and I really enjoy it. This one is a little different than previous ones, I think, in that instead of asking kind of what is the gospel, you're asking, you know, why is the gospel good news? And one of the things you say in the book is that you think the gospel is good news for the nuns and duns. And, you know, those are on everybody's mind right now. Some of us are probably in the process of considering where our faith stands within the church. We've had friends who've left the church who just kind of got fed up with it. So I think this conversation is going to be really relevant to all of us. But I want to start with where you do in the book. And that is at a time that you were talking to a bunch of pastors and you just ask them what sounds like a really easy question, and that is, why did God give us the gospel? And you'd think a question like that, you know, pastors would hit it out of the park. <laughs> you know, that's an easy question everybody should be able to answer clearly and confidently. Can you just take us back to that time, set it up for us, and then tell us how it went? Yeah, well, I'm trying to remember what the exact event was because I do talk to pastors fairly frequently. Sure. But yeah, I asked a room of pastors this question, why the gospel? And there was a fairly stunned silence. I think like if I would have asked, what is the gospel? I would have gotten a, a whole bunch of answers and probably some pretty good ones, some maybe that needed sharpening. But the question, why the gospel, is one that I think throws people off. And I will say that usually after the stunned silence, as I've asked this question to various groups, Maybe the most frequent answer that I hear, and it's a sensible answer, would be, well, because we need forgiveness. 
That would be number one. Number two would be, well, because God loves us, and which is also true. But both of those miss the target, I think, by short-circuiting what Scripture teaches us in its fullness or its full counsel, and misses actually the primary reason God gives the gospel. Maybe his deepest motivation, we would agree, is his love, right? But it misses the primary reason why God gives the gospel in terms of what Scripture wants to say about it, and that is because we need a king. That's, I think, what Scripture is going to want to say about why we need the gospel. So you're saying that Kanye West got it right then? Right? <laughs> he did. Yeah, he did. I, yeah, sometimes people who are on the fringes or you know, just entering into the Christian tradition or engaging it, sometimes they see things more clearly than, than those of us who have been immersed for a long time. Well, we're joking about it, but Kanye had that album out called Jesus is King. And yeah. one of my kids got a sweatshirt that just said Jesus is King, and I wore it to preach on Palm Sunday because that was going to be the message, of course, the kingship of Jesus. And then Kanye did some really stupid things. Yes. And associated with crazy people and stuff. So I'm kind of not sure what to do with that. I don't wear that sweatshirt anymore, that's for <laughs> sure. But at the same time, he declared that Jesus is king. And I think when we think about the gospel, we're more like those pastors. Most of us are thinking forgiveness or I want to have a relationship with Jesus. I want to go to heaven. So it kind of seems like maybe there's something about the gospel that you're challenging, like our belief about the gospel, I guess is maybe the right way to say it. So let me take you back to, I become a Christian in college and it's through a ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ, or that's what it was called then. It's called Crew Now. Crew. And we use this thing called the Four Spiritual Laws. And you know maybe a lot of people are familiar with it. I don't know how popular it is anymore. But the Four Spiritual Laws, the first one was God loves you. The second one, and I'm doing the abbreviated version here, is that you're a sinner, Christ died for you, and you need to put your faith in Jesus. Sounds like you're saying that maybe that's not the right perspective on the gospel, because none of that talks about Jesus being king. Yeah, I would say that isn't the right perspective on the gospel, and that whenever the Bible summarizes the gospel, the most frequent summary is simply just to assert that Jesus is the Christ. And one way or another, we see this again and again in the book of Acts, whenever the apostles are preaching sermons, they're summarizing that Jesus is the Christ. And one way of thinking about this would be to see the term Jesus Christ, like that we tend to consider that a name, that to think about it more as a claim right? That it's a claim that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's actually at the heart of the good news, right? That God has sent his Messiah to us. And that term means the rescuing king, the restoring king, the saving king. There's a lot of different ways in which we could speak about what that means, right? But that's actually at the heart of the good news. And so we tend to think that salvation comes simply through Jesus saving us for our sins. And we tend to move immediately to the atonement what I'm claiming is that we need to move more to the enthronement, right? That the atonement comes through the enthronement. It might be another way of thinking it. We only want the atonement. Well, the atonement means Jesus in one way or another, like erasing our sins or cleansing our sins, but that we need to like think a lot more about Jesus's becoming king and how the benefits of atonement or his cleansing of sins come through that process. Okay, so there's a lot of really good stuff here. So let's just kind of break it down for a second. You say that Jesus Christ isn't a name, it's a claim. And I think probably some people think that it was his last name, right? Like I'm Mary Christ, Joseph Christ, and here's our son, Jesus Christ. But even if you don't think that, you probably think it means something like Savior. But you're saying Christ means what exactly? And where did he get this title? Yeah, so, you know, the term 
Christos in Greek comes from the word crow, which has to do with anointing, right? And it's from the Hebrew. It's really an attempt to do a Greek form of the Hebrew, which would be Mashiach, right? And so the Mashiach would be somebody who was anointed with holy oil. And this was to set this person apart for divine service. So we see prophets, priests, kings were all anointed with holy fluid in the Old Testament. And so they were all messiahs in that sense. But after the time of the Babylonian exile in Israel's history, the prophets began announcing that God would do something spectacular in the future through the line of David. And so there would be a future anointed king in particular that they were looking forward to. Sometimes it got connected to ideas of a future priestly figure as well, but most of the expectation was royal and Davidic. And so there was a hope that a future ruler would come, a Mashiach. And then the Greek term Christos is just our way of moving that into the Greek language. So when we say that Jesus is the Christ, right, or we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus is this long-awaited Davidic king who has now come to rule his people. So the gospel then is an announcement that there's a new king on the scene, and that new king demands our allegiance, demands our devotion. And to kind of say that Jesus is king is to kind of say that what I'm not king or that Caesar's not king. What did it mean in its original context to say Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is God-anointed king? Yeah, in terms of its earliest kind of roots, on the one hand, it was just a claim that would be part of Israel's story, that there would be this king that would be king over the nation of Israel. But this king was pictured in grandiose terms that suggested that he would have more than just local sovereignty, that the nations would in one way or another be impacted by this king. And the most common kind of imagery that's given to us in the Old Testament would be the nations coming and flocking actually to Israel so that they could be in one way or another receive the wisdom that this king would dispense. This king would have wise laws and would have such an overarching significance that it would impact the world, or there would be a worldwide impact through this king. So on the one hand, it's a king unique to Israel's history. On the other hand, one of greater power and sovereignty. So if someone was to say that Jesus is the Christ, that wouldn't necessarily preclude the idea that Caesar couldn't in some way be the emperor too. But there is some tension between those claims. And so someone could say that Jesus is the Christ and that Octavian is the Caesar. And those would have been recognized as appropriate to their own spheres of influence. But to the degree to which Christ is the cosmic king, and as early Christians realize, like, no, he's not just enthroned over Israel, but he's actually ascended to the very right hand of God, right? That he is king of kings and lord of lords. It's when that further claim is made that Jesus is a specific kind of Messiah, one who is the very son of God, one who is now at the right hand, right? And that he's ruling. Then we do see a real conflict with Caesar's ultimacy, right? Caesar can't be the ultimate king anymore as Jesus has precluded him. So if Jesus is king, that means that he demands our allegiance, and therefore some of these other things we give devotion to, like our political kingdoms, our political tribes that we're familiar with talking about here on Truth Over Tribe, those all of a sudden get threatened because Jesus gets the glory, gets the attention, gets our devotion more than those political and tribal loyalties. But before we get down to more of the practical impact in our world, I want to stay on this idea that that what I described as the four spiritual laws, God loves you, you're a sinner, Christ died for you, put your faith in Jesus. That's something over here that I think you agree with. You think all those are true biblical statements in one way or another. They're just not 
the gospel. Instead, we have this King Jesus gospel or whatever people want to call it. And it's kind of different. I mean, it seems to put Jesus more at the center instead of ourselves. And it says that Jesus is King, not just Savior. So let's just kind of think through how would a person live differently depending on which of those gospels that they kind of buy into? Do you have any differences that you think, well, yeah, this will change how you live in your life, depending on which of these two theories that you ascribe to as the gospel? So if we consider what we might call the truncated gospel or the shrunken gospel of the four spiritual laws, what would typically be emphasized within that is that you need to trust in Jesus as your savior and so that your sins can be forgiven. That would be at the heart of it. Now, there's other things that are going to be said too, but that would be the heart of what you need to do. Now, let's consider what's involved in the act of trust. Trust involves like you giving over yourself to a certain kind of mental attentions. On the one hand, you need to affirm a true doctrine. You need to agree mentally that, okay, Jesus died for my sins. All right. And then you need to kind of have a further act where you say, like, do I personally trust that? Okay. On the one hand, I see that it's like a factoid in the world, right? That's act one. But act two would be like, do I personally trust that factoid to be true? And if so, then I've affirmed mentally that Jesus has died for my sins and I've trusted it personally so that it's effective for me. But notice how that doesn't implicate your whole body or even all of your mental life. You could cordon off or you could close off a certain part of your mental life and you could say like, okay, on the one hand, I'm a split personality. I agree with this fact that Jesus died for my sins and that by believing that and personally trusting it that I've entered into salvation. But I have like that cordoned off on one part of my mind, but in my other part of my mind, well, maybe I can watch porn or I can do whatever act of injustice toward my spouse or I can mistreat my mother-in-law or I can do these other things because the really important thing is that Jesus died for my sins and all that's forgiven. And so I have this whole area of my life that might be not really given over to Jesus' sovereignty. If instead we realize that the whole gospel is that Jesus is the Christ and that as part of that story, like in becoming the Christ, he took on human flesh right? He died for our sins. He was raised on the third day that he's ascended to the right hand of God and now reigns in power and he'll return. As part of that whole narrative, if instead we're saying, no, what God really demands of me is allegiance to the king. That act of faith itself is not purely mental. It's a declaration. Like I declare, like I declare my faith toward the king. Right, which means I'm giving fidelity to him. I'm giving loyalty to him. I'm considering him to be the person who's sovereign over me. And no longer am I allowed to kind of like segregate out parts of my life. And so when we look at the nuns and duns issue, right, why are people leaving the church? The number one reason given and data that would be put out by, for example, the Barna group, the number one reason is hypocrisy. People leave because they believe that the church is full of hypocrites. Why? <laughs> like, well, could it be partly because we're using a shrunken gospel? Right? Could it be because I'm telling people all along that what God really wants is you to just trust that Jesus has died for your sins, but meanwhile, you've left all this other space in your life that Jesus doesn't need to be sovereign over. Once we get the true gospel in place and we realize it's about Jesus becoming the king, right, so that he's now ruling, and we have a wholehearted allegiance response that involves bodily action too then hypocrisy is undermined when we begin to unite what our bodies are doing with what our minds are doing. Yeah. Okay. So this makes sense out of what we see in our culture, right? Where so many people can say that they are Christians and perhaps they pray to prayer at a camp or to church service or somewhere along the way with their family. 
and yet live inconsistently with Christianity and not see a conflict there. We all are inconsistent in our faith. So it's not as if we're saying that if you buy into this King Jesus gospel, that all of a sudden you're not going to have any hypocrisy. It's just that the way we've set up Christianity almost makes it permissible, okay, because you ask Christ to be your Savior, you're going to go to heaven, but he doesn't make any demands outside of that. But when you read through the gospels, you look, and can you imagine Jesus saying, hey, look, as long as you believe in me, you don't really need to do what I say. You can trust me for your eternal life, but you don't really have to trust me for your everyday life. And when you think of that, you think, well, Jesus never says anything like that. It just kind of seems silly. And yet the gospel of ask Christ to be your savior and you'll go to heaven, that kind of gives permission to people to compartmentalize their life. And I think another thing it does is it makes us ask the question, did I really believe? You know, it results in a lot of introspection because when we see inconsistency in our life, we go, well, maybe I didn't really believe. How do I know if I really believed? How is that different than what the King Jesus gospel and the gospel you're presenting in your book kind of lay out? Yeah, a false gospel or one that's like just imprecise, like can move us into sort of a tailspin of doubt. I have a friend who told me a story about how he got saved multiple times and was actually a leader at a church camp. And he felt this pressure, like people around him were saying, I wasn't really saved in the past. And he felt pressure like to get saved again. And then he began to say, well, I don't really need to do that. I know I've trusted the Lord. But then he began to fear like, well, am I just saying that because that's like me relying on my own power and my own strength? Like, and maybe I'm actually not fully trusted and I need to give myself over again, or this sort of vicious cycle of doubt, right, can hobble the church. And I think the allegiance model helps us with that because even in the midst of our doubt, we can still give allegiance to the king. We may on our worst days even doubt that he is the king. We may be like, this whole Christian story is like nonsense. Like I've kind of lost my intellectual faith is shaken at this moment because of something I read or some experience in my life, even on those worst days, we can still give our allegiance to the king and say, even though it doesn't make sense, I've found out through my life pattern that Jesus's ways work. Where else can I go? Like there, I have no other hope, right? Where else can I go? I'm going to still try giving my loyalty to this king and we'll see how this journey continues. And so I don't break my loyalty. I keep on going in terms of my overall trajectory. Now, there are obviously many ways in which we send each day that are minor breaches of loyalty, just like we might think there were like anyone who's serving, you know, in the military isn't perfectly on task at every moment of the day as their general would wish, right? They're snoozing instead of cleaning their gun or whatever it might be. That's not an act of disloyalty that would disqualify you from service, right? To the army, nor would it disqualify you for service to King Jesus, doubly so since he's a forgiving king, right? who wears a crown of thorns for us. Yeah, so this explains so much to me when I first read your book, Gospel Allegiance, and before that, what was the one before that, Salvation? Uh, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, yeah. Yeah, when I've read these books, they just started making sense out of my Christian experience because growing up in my faith in Campus Crusade, they had this tool called the Jesus Film, and the Jesus Film was kind of a story of Jesus' life translated in thousands of languages, I really don't know, but a lot. And it was based, I think, on the Gospel of Luke, if I remember right. At the end of the Jesus film, there would be a chance to say a prayer and ask Christ to be your Savior. Well, they showed this in every city, every village, every neighborhood, in many, many countries. And all these people, they would report back, came to faith in Jesus. But I never knew where they went. We didn't need more churches. The country didn't change. The city didn't change. So where did all those people go, I would ask myself. 
And another story kind of similar to that, in 1994, that was when there was the Rwanda genocide. And within like 100 days, there are over 500,000, maybe close to a million Tutsis and Hutus, moderate Hutus killed by these Hutu militias. It was a religious war. But in 1994, Rwanda was one of the most Christian nations, at least by survey results, in the whole world. And so like, well, how do you have these Christians killing each other in the name of tribal loyalty if they're really Jesus followers? So how does your kind of perspective on the gospel explain the Jesus film where all these people are accepting Christ, but nobody's showing up in church or doing anything different or the Rwanda stuff? Is it that you're saying there's a lot of people out there maybe who think they're Christians who aren't? Yeah, I mean, God only can judge the heart, right, obviously. But yes, I would say that there are a lot of people probably who have prayed a prayer at some point in their life, but haven't actually given their loyalty to Jesus. When we think about what the New Testament speaks about with regard to salvation, you know, a very famous passage, which would be the Romans 10, 9 through 10, right? But that's part of that, right? It involves believing in the heart that Jesus was raised from the dead. But the part about Jesus's lordship is something that we often miss. It's that if you confess that Jesus is Lord, not that he's Savior, right? And the confess language, homologeo in Greek, has to do with a public confession. So it's very close to a loyalty or allegiance declaration. Like if you're publicly proclaiming Jesus is Lord, what does that mean other than some sort of acknowledgement of his sovereignty over your life? And so really when the Bible speaks about what actualizes salvation or what causes it to happen, I think if we were to get most precise about it, it would be a declaration that Jesus is the King. Not that somebody couldn't get saved by praying a prayer or by whatever it might be as some sort of like, we all have stories about how we entered into salvation that may not have involved an actual oath of allegiance to the king. But I think at some point in our lives, that gets elevated to something that looks an awful lot like loyalty. And we may call it different things. We may speak about it in different ways in the church. But if that never happens, I don't think that we enter salvation. I think that God gives the Holy Spirit on the basis of our loyalty commitment to him. And whenever we actually turn the corner and we do more than pray a prayer, but we actually are giving ourselves over to him as an act of allegiance, that's when the Holy Spirit is given. That would be my understanding of salvation. So this truncated or malformed gospel, you talk about that, we'll get to it here in a second in your book, some malformed gospels that kind of get a little bit wrong. One of the consequences of that is that we kind of ask the question, what's the minimum I have to believe in order to get into heaven? Like what's the least a person can do or believe in order to be okay with God and be accepted and forgiven and all that? And it's just so radically different than what you see in your Bible because what Jesus does is he says, follow me, right? The word Christian, I think is used three times. The word disciple is used 250 plus times. And so even how we think about what it means to be a Christian isn't somebody who's prayed a prayer, but it's somebody who is actively following Jesus, which I think is what you're getting at in the whole allegiant thing. So let's just go back and say, hey, could you just kind of break down, if you don't think four laws quite get it, what would be the main points of the gospel, the main points of the good news, the way the Bible uses it? 
Yeah, I actually outline the gospel in kind of as a 10-part statement, but that's a lot for people to kind of think through and remember. It is. <laughs> but each of those 10 points, I think we can demonstrate from Scripture. Scripture clearly calls each of the 10 events part of the gospel, so I think that's important. But I think that it's also helpful to head it up by saying that the main message is that Jesus is the King. I like to qualify that by saying He's the saving King, the forgiving King, the justified King, and I think that's a perfectly accurate way to summarize the gospel just in brief. But if okay. we want to get more precise, I think we would want to say that the gospel begins when the Father sends the Son, and the Father sends the Son then specifically to take on human flesh, right? And so the incarnation would be an important beginning point of the gospel, and that's actually necessary for our salvation. It's not just about the cross, and we can maybe talk about that more. Why is the incarnation essential to the gospel? We could circle back to that perhaps if you wish. But then after taking on human flesh, then Jesus obviously lives life, but he dies for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He's buried. On the third day, he's raised according to the scriptures. And then he's seen by many witnesses. He makes an appearance. And then after that, this is what I would say is actually the climax of the gospel is that he's then exalted to the right hand of God where he's enthroned and he begins to rule. From that position, then he sends the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit empowers the church in such a way that the Holy Spirit's gifts are given. The benefits of the gospel are made present in the church community, right? And then finally, Jesus will return again to rule. So that's how I outline the gospel in 10 parts and wanting to speak quite precisely about it. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. when I read your book, you just can't go back and read the Gospels and not see it just pop everywhere. What does Jesus come preaching? He comes preaching the kingdom of God. If you were to go out and hear Jesus in one of his early talks, you might think he was going to just kind of give moral instruction or maybe parables. And of course, he gives both of those. He teaches in parables quite a bit. And yet when the Bible wants to summarize Jesus' message, they say he went from city to city preaching the kingdom of 
of God over his cross as he's king of the Jews. At the beginning of John 1, it says that he is the king of Israel. And of course, John concludes or near the conclusion with Pilate saying that Jesus is the king. And so you just can't unsee it. But for so many years, I failed to recognize what is obviously just right there in front of us. Why do you think we have missed this. Like it just frustrates me that I missed it for so many years and so many other people are still missing it. Is there a reason that we've somehow just aren't willing to see the kingship of Jesus where we trained wrong? Is it that we don't like kings? Is it self-centeredness? Some of what all is of that probably. I mean, I do think that that is the fundamental human sin, right? Is to take sovereignty over our own lives and to create our own reality, to say that I get to choose what's good and evil for myself right? That I'm the one who's king over what's right and wrong. That's Adam and Eve's problem, right? As they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so I think that teaches us about the essence of sin. It isn't actually a rejection of God's kingship and therefore a rejection of Jesus as king. So it shouldn't be horribly surprising if we struggle to see Jesus's kingship as the essence of good news, right? Because we want to actually take that sovereignty for ourselves. So some of it is our own selfishness. Some of it's also training, as I think there's a long history. On the one hand, the church has always recognized Jesus as king. It's not like the church has ever completely neglected that topic. But I do think that in the history of the church, Christ did become to function more like a name and less like a title. And so as the tradition developed, we have a long history of Christ coming to mean just a cipher for Jesus. So there's a slippage there and an imprecision that I think made it difficult for people to really see that what was intended is actually a royal honorific title and sort of to reduce that just Christ down to a generic way of speaking about Jesus. I do think that caused us to maybe miss the royal overtones of all that. And so some of it is training in that way. And I think that the third thing you mentioned is legit also, especially like we move from a European context to the growth of nationalism and to North American context where like kingship has largely been rejected in terms of present democracies and republics in the world. Yeah, we don't really want to deal with that category. We tend to want to tell ourselves the story that Jesus came to set us free from rules, right? That's the story we want to tell ourselves and that people who make rules and Christians who are rule makers are just hypocrites and they're horrible people because Jesus came to set us free from all that nonsense. And that's partly because we don't want to keep. That's actually a deep problem that we have, I think, in a North American culture, is that we need to be comfortable with the idea of, no, rules are given for our good by our king, who himself embodies his own wise laws. He's not above the law. He actually lives them out himself and tells us what it means to live in light of his wise kingdom and his wise rules. One of the things that we could say about kings is they sit on thrones, and every throne I've ever seen is a one-seater right? There's no love seats for a throne, right? Kings don't share their thrones. And I think that's part of what causes us to resist it is that we understand to say Jesus king is a threat to ourselves. I think of Herod, King Herod, who in Matthew 2 is going to kill all the babies in Bethlehem because the Magi tell him that a new king has been born and he's threatened by this new king and we're threatened by it. And then you throw in that America was founded by overthrowing a king and many of our kings today have maybe a bad reputation, deservedly so. They haven't used their power wisely. And yet here we have the perfect 
king, the wise king, the good king, the compassionate king, the forgiving king, the saving king, the dying king. And it takes a while to reorient our heart around that. One thing that Patrick and I, I don't know, maybe we got this from you, I'm not sure, but we look at the U.S. citizenship oath. Have you ever looked at that? Did I get that from one of your books? I don't think you got that from one of my books, but we may have talked about it. But yeah, I have looked at it before, yes. It's pretty amazing when a person becomes a citizen of the United States. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm just going to read part of it because it's a little too long. But just listen to this, and then I want you to help us think about how this might be a paradigm for what it would look like to pledge our allegiance to King Jesus. But when you become a citizen of the United States, you say this, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen, and that I will support and defend the Constitution and laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. And then it goes on to say how we will be at service of our country. Is that kind of talk about allegiance and all that, rejecting a former loyalty, is that how we should think about what it means to become a Christian? Yes. (laughs) And I think the number one former loyalty that we can be naive about is to the self, right? And I think on the one hand, it's pretty easy to say, yes, I renounce Satan. I renounce the darkness. I renounce both the degree to which the darkness has permeated the self. Like that's where we have real Mm -hmm. trouble renouncing. Um, And so I do think that it is something that we do need to to take seriously in terms of thinking about our allegiance to King Jesus and renouncing loyalties to other powers, but even to the power of the self's rationalizations. Yeah, it's a whole different way than I thought of myself becoming a Christian, where I just prayed a prayer and say, Jesus, will you forgive me? And we don't want to mock that or minimize that. That's a really important thing. But I'm not just praying that to this Savior. I'm also praying it to the King of the universe, and I'm surrendering and submitting to him, hopefully, in that prayer, if it's at least the way that the Bible describes the way it should be. You have a whole chapter on malformed gospels. That's your term. Pick one or two of those and tell us, what do these malformed gospels get wrong, and why does it matter? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that um, we can think of a number of different malformed gospels. I think I give six. Probably one of the most popular malformed gospels would be something like that the gospel is all about just reunion with God, that God is perfect. He's the creator. He's righteous. Humans have sinned. And so we now fall short of his standards. And so we have to then get in the right with God by trusting that Jesus's death covers our sins so that his righteousness now becomes our righteousness and covers us like a garment. And so then like whether we sin or not, his righteousness is covering us. So God sees only his righteousness and not our sin. And so then we're kind of on good terms with God. Like on the one hand, there's a lot of truth in that, right? As we would want to affirm dimensions of that. But on the other hand, you might've noticed what's missing, King. And what else is missing? Allegiance, right? None of those are really part of that story. So I think as we rethink that, we have to rethink it in terms of allegiance. And maybe a sharper way of speaking about that would be to say that whenever we sinned, what we lost was not just a right standing with God. The harm that sin causes and the problem that it causes is one that is not just personal, but it's cosmic and it's social. Like it goes beyond just the person and that what God intended for each person was because they're made in his image, right? It was to bear glory. Like our job is actually to 
to carry God's fame like into creation so that as other people encounter us, like they're actually seeing God, right? As they encounter us. And so that like, whenever it talks about us falling short, like in Romans, it actually isn't falling short of God's righteous standard. The emphasis is on falling short of his glory. And that's because humans have exchanged the glory of God through idolatry. So instead of us carrying the glory of God to creation, instead we've been captured by idols, right? And we then, as part of that, as part of the self-worship and the body worship that's connected to idolatry, right? We're failing to distribute God's glory to creation. And so that really what God is trying to do is he's trying to save us not just from sin and from death and from hellfire or however we want to frame this and from evil powers, but he's wanting to save us for something, right? To save us for full restoration so that we can begin doing what he designed us to do, which is to bear glory. So the idea of, well, we're separated from God and we just need to get back into communion with God, it misses so much that really drives the biblical story and about how we then ultimately come to co-reign with Jesus, that he is the king of kings, but that our ultimate destiny is by gazing on him to come to be conformed to his image. Paul describes the gospel in 2 Corinthians 4.4 as the gospel of the glory of the Christ, the image of God. And so really the gospel is about how the glory of the Christ devolves onto humans as we gaze upon him and become transformed into his image. And in so doing, we bring about restoration for creation. So that's one of them that helps us to see also why incarnation matters, right? Because we have to see the glory of Jesus. We have to see who he is. And it's by gazing on the glorious one as he's taken on human flesh that our own transformation begins to ensue. I think that's a good one to pick because I think what happens is that we divide our life. We've already kind of talked about this a little bit, compartmentalization, but we divide it between the spiritual and everything else, the things that supposedly God cares about, you know, maybe God, church services, small groups, Bible studies, and the rest of our life. And this whole Jesus is king idea says, no, Jesus cares about all of your life and we need to bring all of it under his authority. We need to submit in all areas of our life. And I think at least the way I understand it, that takes us a little bit to the nuns and duns, because one of the things that are causing people to leave the faith is kind of the church has turned them off to it, right? The church hasn't lived up to their own creeds. It's like, okay, I'm not sure if I believe this, but I'm not even sure if you Christians believe this. That's kind of how the nuns think, because you don't even seem to follow it. Before we get into that a little bit, could you just give us a quick idea of who are the nuns and duns, as you refer to them? Yeah, so obviously the nuns are people who, for one reason or another, have never embraced Christianity. Maybe they prayed a prayer at some point in their life, like in some way, like to ask Jesus for forgiveness, but they were never involved in the church and never even thought they were. Whatever their engagement might have been was so superficial that we can't, for any practical purposes, say that they've ever been Christians. And most of those people wouldn't self-identify in that direction. They would just say, no, I've, I've never been a Christian. Okay, maybe I thought like for one fleeting moment that I was, but then I realized this wasn't for me and I never have lived that way. So they would be people who would self-identify as not being Christian. The duns, on the other hand, are people you know who have given up entirely, where they have said, okay, I tried this Jesus thing. I believed like what the church 
told me to believe. I at least tried to believe it for a while, but either I had such severe doubts that I couldn't continue or I tried living in that way for a while and then I decided it was all just nonsense or there was some gross act of hypocrisy that pushed me away or that my own views have shifted and you know maybe they see the church as anti-homosexual but they're pro you know whatever it may be some reason or another has caused them to be like nope I'm done I'm done with this whole church thing they may still have some affection for Jesus, though, ultimately, right? Some of those mm. duns may say, like, I'm done with organized religion, but I still have some affection for Jesus. And I think in some way, he may have convincing answers for the world. You say in the book, and you already alluded to it earlier, I think you're quoting Barner Research here, that the nuns and duns are turned off by hypocrisy, Christians being sold out to politics, Christians caring more about converts than anything else. Christians, at least in their perspective, being anti-homosexual, anti-gay, living sheltered lifestyle, and then finally being judgmental. And, you know, if you've been around the church for long, you have to kind of agree that there are pockets of the church, depending on where you live, what kind of church you go to, what your personal experience has been. There are pockets of the church that definitely deserve these labels. So why is the message that Jesus is king compelling to these nuns and duns? Why might that be more compelling than what we're calling the truncated gospel of ask Christ to be your savior? Yeah. So I already spoke to this a little bit earlier with regard to the hypocrisy issue about how it helps unite mind and heart, right? Like hypocrisy happens whenever your body is not doing whatever your mind is saying it should do and that you're mentally professing or you're saying with your lips. But let's shift that a little bit and think about the counting converts issue. As one model for thinking about what it means to be a Christian is that salvation is a transaction. So that you're not a Christian and then I share the good news with you and then you pray a sinner's prayer or you respond in some way favorably and then boom, you become a Christian. It's something that can't be reversed. Like in some models would understand it that way. Like once you've made that decision that could never could possibly be taken away, once saved, always saved kind of thought. And so that you've then inescapably entered into the church. And so you're now enrolled in heaven in some way. And so you can go back, if you're on an evangelism team, you can go back and report that three souls were saved today as we went out and we evangelized or whatever the case might be. The truth of the matter is that non-Christians are aware of that sensibility and they're highly turned off by that. They fear that the only reason that you, A, want to be their friend or B, want to even share the good news with them is so that you can go back and report another soul has been added to the ledger. Think of how dehumanizing that is and no wonder they're turned off by that. Now think about allegiance to King Jesus and think about his unique calling he places on each. Really, if salvation is about the individual being transformed into the image of Christ, that isn't somehow apart from our uniqueness, but embraces it. Like all of our diversity, all the strange things about who we are, right? Yeah, well, some of those have to get carved off that are sinful and wrong, but some of us are artistic geniuses and others are amazingly logical. Other people are incredible organizers and all of these unique gifts actually end up like being important, not just for an interesting fact, but actually as part of your salvation. Like in some way, God is going to take all that you are. Like your allegiance is going to call you to something that it may not call me to. 
And we see this, for example, at the end of the Gospel of John, in that very delightful story of Peter being restored, right? As part of that, Peter is, you know, a little bit upset that Jesus has just told him that he's going to have to die in a certain way. And then he had Peter's like all nosy. He's like, well, what about John? What about the disciple whom you loved, who's following behind and listening to the conversation? What about him? Is he going to have to die? And Jesus gives an, if it's the case that he will or won't, what business is that to you, Peter? Kind of response. Your job is instead to follow me. And ultimately, within that larger discourse, to feed the lambs. And so it reminds us that John the Apostle's calling is not the same as Peter's calling in terms of what allegiance is going to look like. Each of them is going to have their own allegiance because they have their own unique gifts and skills that God is going to wrap up into salvation for them. So I think that's part of the power of it is that an allegiance model recognizes our full humanity and says God is interested in saving you personally in all that you are and not just putting a stamp on you that you're forgiven or a label like, okay, you prayed the prayer, boom, you're forgiven. I don't care who you are. All you needed was this generic stamp. The allegiance model says that's nonsense. God wants you to become a loyal person and to take all of your bizarreness, all of your gifting, and to wrap it up into his body to do something majestic as a whole corporate group. That's excellent. I think that there's some personal issues and what we might call public issues. And maybe five years ago, 10 years ago, sometime in the past, if you would have said, do we need a king? I think people have looked at you kind of funny, like, I don't know, things are going okay. But in the last decade, things have been a mess in our world, right? I mean, whether it's racial injustice or the debate over trans issues, or it could be economics and the inequality between the richest and the poorest, the fracturing of our country, suspicion toward all institutions. And I think there's a sense in which people are saying, you know, we need something. Something needs to be different in our world. And if I understand it right, the King Jesus model says, yeah, you know what? Jesus cares about this world. And he wants to bring justice to this world. Psalm 9-7 says, The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. And I know you teach at a Catholic university. Did you see the little Twitter squabble between Pope Francis and Jordan Peterson? I did not. No, I, I teach at a Catholic university, but I'm Protestant and I don't always follow the Catholic conversations as much as I probably should. But yeah, fill me in. There's a tweet from Pope Francis talking favorably about social justice and about poverty and inequality and things like that. And then Professor Peterson, who, you know, is never short on self-confidence, he tweeted back and he said, there's nothing Christian about social justice. Redemptive salvation is a matter of the individual soul. Well, you probably shouldn't try to correct the Pope about what constitutes salvation in that kind of unilateral way, right? When you don't probably know that much about it. But yeah, the idea that the gospel should somehow be separated off from social action is a huge misunderstanding. And it's not just Peterson. There was a statement issued with John MacArthur as the leading signatory some years back, the statement on social justice and the gospel that kind of said they don't really have anything to do with one another. That's a serious misunderstanding of the gospel because the gospel is socio-politically constant. Like, if I proclaim Jesus as king, then I'm becoming part of his citizen body. And as part of that, I'm placing myself under his directives, which include 
the moral injunctions to justice. And so on the one hand, it's like, you know, when I gave my 10-part outline of what the gospel is, it didn't include acts of social justice. But on the other hand, once you place yourself under this king's sovereignty by affirming all these things are true about who this king is, this king has directives that involve social justice, and they transform me so that I become a messenger of peace. I become a messenger of righteousness. I become a messenger who is in some way trying to work for a better world under King Jesus's authority. We can't separate the gospel from sociopolitical action. That's one of the things I love about this kind of what is relatively new to me, considering how long I've become a Christian, the way of thinking about the gospel is that it makes sense out of why we should pursue justice in our world. And I think of those yard signs. I don't know if you have these in your, you know, where you live, but especially a few years ago around the election, there were these yard signs that said, you know, in this house, we believe. And then they kind of, in my opinion, they're declaring their religion. They're telling you what they believe. And they had things like Black Lives Matter, women's rights are human rights, no human is illegal, science is real, love is love. And I think the King Jesus gospel says that Christians should engage those issues, right? Like those are not extras or addendums to the Christian life, but that Christianity speaks to the things that the culture is concerned about. Maybe it supports them. Maybe it gives a motivation. Maybe it turns it upside down or inside out. But is that right to say that the King Jesus gospel has something to say to those yard signs that say, in this house, we believe? Yeah, it is right to say that. I would qualify that only by saying that I think that the source of political agency and action has to stem out of the church. So it stems out of the local community as the local community comes together and they place themselves under Jesus's sovereignty. And they say together, Jesus is my king, which is actually the hardest thing to do on a Sunday morning. Like there's so many distractions from actually doing that. Like we may worship Jesus, you know, using bands, but do we actually place ourselves under his authority and say, rule over us right now? If we do that, if we actually find ourselves finding a way to put ourselves under his authority, then we're constituted as a socio-political body. We're actually being directed by his Holy Spirit as he's ruling over us. And that should spill out from there to create an alternative socio-political reality that impacts neighborhoods and impacts signs that people have. But it has to spill out, I think, of the community that's confessing Jesus is king. So the action originates there. It doesn't mean that it stops there, but it originates there. i tell you uh, about something someone said to me in our church and then see how you would have answered the question. But it was on a Sunday morning, he has to get together because he was deeply concerned that we were kind of moving away from the gospel. And the reason he said, and by the way, this is an intelligent, professional, great person with a great family, serves in the church, fabulous person. I wish we had more people like him. And yet, when we're having this conversation, he was concerned because we had been talking about what I think he'd say is racial justice and how the Bible addresses the issues of racial unity and disunity and all the issues that we've experienced over the last, say, four or five years. And he said to me, look, the gospel doesn't speak to this. You're bringing in social issues into the church, but you should get back to the gospel. How would you respond to him? Yeah, that's a great question and a tricky conversation, obviously, pastorally. Yes. (laughs) I probably would respond by saying that one of the effects or the benefits of the gospel is that it constitutes a political body. And so that whenever the gospel is proclaimed and we ask people to respond that Jesus is king, 
that declaration creates a socio-political body that has certain concerns. One of those concerns would be racial justice, and we would see that within Galatians, for instance, where Paul is speaking about the gospel being under threat and attack, and then Paul eventually circles around and says there is no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, we're all one in Christ. And in so doing, Paul's not saying that those social roles don't exist anymore, but he's saying they've been relativized. We are all actually constituted as one citizen body, where those distinctions are not as important anymore. Not that they don't exist, not that somehow or another there's no such thing as male nor female after Christ, but the idea is that we're actually one organism in Jesus. And so that does speak specifically to the issue of racial healing, right? When we talk about no Jew nor Greek, there was a lot of racial animosity that was loaded into all of that in the ancient world. So that would be one really clear instance where we could say, no, actually, it's something that directly follows from the gospel and is a gospel concern for Paul, as Paul wants to say that if the gospel is being preached, this is an effect of the gospel. That's probably how I would have handled it. That makes sense. It seems to me that the way I read, if I'm reading it correctly, of the New Testament is that racial tension, ethnic tension, it may not be exactly what we mean by race, but those kind of ethnic people group tensions are central or important in many of the New Testament letters. And part of what the gospel does is makes one people. And it breaks down, like Paul says in Ephesians 2, the dividing wall. So language here gets a little tricky. And so you may not like this, and maybe I'm wrong in saying it this way, but I don't think racial justice is a social issue. It is, but I think it's first a gospel issue. I don't mean it's the heart of the gospel, but I mean it's an issue that comes right out of the gospel. And a person who believes the gospel is going to want to work in their small way, wherever they are, for racial justice. Is that fair or am I using language too carelessly. No, I think that's fair. Obviously, like what we mean by racial justice, we would need to probe. And, sure. And that's probably where a lot of the tension was in this person who was bringing it up. A lot of things that come under the banner of racial justice may not actually be that, or what is the actual solution to racial injustices? And so sometimes these things have to do more with like the wisdom of policy. And what's the goal, for instance, in racial justice? Is it to create a colorblind society, like where people don't even notice it? Or is it actually to embrace the diversity so we actually see color in a more enhanced way. And we just are embracing the culture that comes along with that and having a level playing. What, what is the goal, right? And so it could be that this person who brought the concern to you would have a heart for racial justice very much and would see it even as a gospel issue, but maybe didn't feel like there was wisdom in terms of policy and how it was being broached. I have no idea. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, my big thing is I want Christians to be engaged in that cultural conversation, and all those things that you brought up are legitimate conversations to have, and we'd have to wrestle through them and come to some conclusions. But sometimes I think Christians are sitting on the sidelines saying, I asked Jesus to be my Savior. My sins are forgiven. I'm going to go to heaven when I die. I don't care about this world. And I think when you see Jesus as king over the whole world— then what you're saying is, no, because I'm a Christian, I care deeply about these things because God cares about justice. God cares about the unborn. God cares about economics because he's king over everything. So he cares about art and all that. And so I just want Christians to be engaged in that instead of saying, well, I've got this escapist gospel that gets me out of here. Before we get out of here, I want to talk a little bit more about this political stuff. You keep bringing up political and that word. And when we think of political, we think of Republicans and Democrats, right? We think of partisanship. When you say Jesus is political or Jesus' kingdom has a politic, what do you mean by that? 
I'm reflecting on passages like in Philippians where Paul talks about living worthily as citizens with respect to the gospel, right? And I'm paraphrasing there, but politic is actually a verb connecting to being constituted as a political body that Paul would be using as part of his language there. And so I have more that idea, like a citizen body has certain kinds of responsibilities and certain kinds of powers right, as they come together. And so I'm using it in the general sense of Jesus is political in the sense that he has a people and a body politic that is capable of social and political action that's constituted under his banner. So I'm not using it in the partisan way. Certainly, I wouldn't want to say that Jesus couldn't be partisan, right, that he couldn't flip the tables on one party or another. Certainly, I think he could. But I would want to say that that's not what I mean by saying he's political in the first instance. I mean more that he has a people. He is a people, and those people have an ethic. They have a set of values. That's right. I've heard you say that you would probably start with the Sermon on the Mount. If I wanted to know Jesus's kingdom values or Jesus's kingdom politic, is that right? That's a pretty good place to go. Yeah, you could go to a lot worse places. That's right. Yeah, that's a pretty good place. That's where I would go first, probably. Yeah. And so Jesus doesn't want to be president. He's king of the universe. A president would be a huge demotion for him. And no political platform, libertarian, progressive, Green Party, Republicans, whatever, can contain Jesus's ethic perfectly. Jesus pushes back on all of them. And yet, you know, in some ways, maybe they do have a little bit of grasp on what Jesus is about in this world. But declaring Jesus as king means that we can't declare our political party as king. Our hope is not in the President Biden or whoever the next president is going to be. We don't think the kingdom is going to come through political reign, but instead we believe that the kingdom is going to come only when King Jesus brings it. Is there anything you would say to Christians as how they are involved in politics? Do you look around and say, I think the church has gotten corrupted by political hopes, or is that not necessarily something you're seeing where you are? No, I do think the church has sometimes been overly corrupted by that and maybe wants to force a coercive ethical vision. We have to be very careful about that as we serve a king that opt to reign in that way right now, who would say, no, I would rather be mistreated. And so I would rather allow injustice to happen to me and to my people seems to be more King Jesus's ethic than forcing people to live in the right way. And that there's a third way, right? That Jesus turns the other cheek, which is not a way of just allowing people to beat you, but as a way of like asserting some sort of dignity as a way of shaming. So it would seem like maybe part of the church's calling to be the body politic would be to put people to shame as they mistreat Christians and they mistreat the unborn, that they would see like this way in which we're living is degraded compared to what they're doing and here we are like attacking them and there would be a sense of shame. And even if they don't feel it, God has that under his purview. So yeah, being careful to not, I guess, be overbearing and creating a coercive ethic that we're trying to force people who are not Christians to follow. That's difficult though, as we're also commanded to protect the unborn and things like that. Like those who are the least of these, if we have the opportunity to make laws in that direction, I do feel like, yeah, it's not out of line with the King Jesus gospel to try to work for the better good of society, even when society doesn't want that good. There's a tension there, and I don't know that I have the answers. I don't know if you've had an opportunity to have a conversation yet with Patrick Schreiner, but he has a new book out, Political Gospel, and he has some categories and models that are helpful for Christians too, to think through. 
Yeah, it's a good recommendation. Patrick Miller did talk to Patrick Schreiner. Okay. And we'll throw that in our show notes. If people want to go back and listen to that, they can find that episode there. Hey, Matthew, I really appreciate your time and your perspective. Your writing is super helpful. It's changed so much for me personally in my life, and I'd recommend all of your books to anyone. The newest one is coming out on May 16th, and that's why the gospel, but the gospel allegiance would be another great book for people to pick up. You have a one called Gospel Precisely. So you people can tell what your theme is uh, yeah. that you write about. It's about the gospel, right? Would you pray for us as we close, just that our eyes would be open to Jesus as King? Absolutely. Let's pray. Holy Father, we praise you. We want to see your kingdom come in all its fullness. We thank you for sending King Jesus. We thank you that we have the opportunity to commit our lives to him and through allegiance to enter into your glory, the glory that you want your people to have for the sake of all of creation and for your own sake too. Um, We pray, Lord, that you would help us to not be captured by partisan politics in inappropriate ways, but that we would give our loyalty to King Jesus first. And we do pray, Lord, that through that, great good might be done for ourselves and for the world. I pray your blessing on all the work um, that folks around the world are doing to um, promote loyalty to King Jesus. And I thank you um, for um, for Keith, for Patrick, for others um, who are involved in this podcast and the work they're trying to do. And I ask that you would bless it um, so that we might prove to be a blessing to you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter. 